Hello and welcome back to series two of So Hot Right Now, a podcast all about communicating the climate and nature crises. I'm Tom Mustill, filmmaker, writer, and also now a dad. And I'm Sam Lee. I'm a folk singer. I'm a nature lover and a writer. I thought you were going to say, I'm a nature writer, a lover. (laughs) All those words in whatever order. Our mission is to energise and inspire you, our audience. So we can all, in some form, help prevent this wonderful planet of ours from becoming unlivable. This series is sponsored by One Earth, a philanthropic organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5C through three key transitions. Shift to 100% renewable energy, protection and restoration of nature, and regenerative agriculture. This This is So Hot Hot Right right now. Now. Wow, that was good. Welcome to episode two. So we're really lucky that we've had coming into the studio one of the top environmental lawyers. She's an activist. She's somebody who's worked for many different governments advising and helping to draft policy in many places, including COP, for over 30 years. She's worn and continues to wear many hats. She's been involved in climate negotiations. She's worked for the UN. She has represented vast numbers of nation states like the climate vulnerable countries. She has come to this COP and she's a lawyer She's a mother. She's also a great cook. Is she? Her food is amazing. Oh, I'm jealous now. But today we're going to share her journey for you listening to kind of understand what it's like to wrangle with these massive global issues for justice, for the climate, for indigenous people as a lawyer and as a human being. Could you tell us your name? Yeah, my name is Fahana Yamin. And what's your job? I say lawyer and activist. And over the course of your career, can you talk about some of the organisations that you've worked for and what you're currently focusing on? So I've always worked for the small islands and vulnerable countries in the negotiations. So I worked for Samoa for like eight years. I worked for the Maldives for many years. I worked for the Marshall Islands. And this year I was working for Bangladesh which chairs 55 countries called the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So there's hundreds of podcasts about what happened at COP, why it's important, but could you just explain to us what your part of it was, what you went there trying to do and how you felt it went? Yeah, I mean, for me, the end of this COP is even more poignant, I guess, because I've been involved in the negotiations since 1991. So for me, it was 30 years. It's really 30 years. And this COP, I really felt, is the fork in the road for me personally. At what point do I, you know, really let go of Mm. this life that I've lived for 30 years, which has involved being away for two, three months of the year and the most intensive COP phases, usually six weeks minimum Mm. a year, more like two months a year, which is quite a lot. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling a little bit rested. I was at the COP for about 18 days in a row. Wow. And then I was up in Scotland another week before that, actually. So I guess over the last six, seven weeks, I've been in Scotland more than I have been at home. And where is home for you? Home is in North London. And I came back and there was the usual, the garden's completely overgrown. Lots of plants have died. (laughs) You know, stuff in the fridge going off. So Mm. as a mother... I feel I spent 
a day kind of just unpacking, washing, putting mm. stuff back in place. What's but still trying to, at the same time, think they've done really well, my kids, to mm. not burn down the house, to keep each other company, <laughs> to keep going. It's actually quite a big thing yeah. for my young son, who's 14, to... I think he actually missed me, you know, which was a surprise. Uh, there's a well-known condition uh, for musicians. It's called post-tour blues. You come back from like, you know, a month on the road of the high, the thrill, the agony, the tiredness, and you get back to the domestic and there's the crash. And I wondered, having come from the intensity of that time that, you know, you're there to save the world and then you're coming back and, you know, nobody's taking the bins out. How do you reckon with that? You're absolutely right. I didn't know there was an official term for it. Yeah, so the recycling was not quite right. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I had to, as I said, remember the big things. The big mm. things were they'd been so wonderful and kept each other company. So do you think this is like what lots of people, you know, there were tens of thousands of people in the blue zone who are now going home from this or have gone home from this whirlwind that they've been building up to for months or years and are now all sat at home trying to take stock of themselves, like how they're feeling, what happened, you know, how their kids have taken the bins out, like the sort of post-cooperative or copped out. I don't know, like you're part of this whole cohort of people who've been trying to use this important meeting to get some really important things done. Yeah, so sort of always on the road. So I don't know how much you tour Salmon with a... Probably it's more, but I'm sure with your... With your childcare arrangements, you know that it's pretty disruptive when you're away, especially for a whole week or two weeks. Indeed. I mean, this is it when you are a mother to many different beings and things and your sense of duty of care. It's a hard one to step away from, from your family to say, actually, I've got to go and look after the planet for a little while. Sam's um, just finished, actually, his tour. Now he's got a clear run till Christmas. I'm terrified. Really? Yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of this that's the kind of like, well, who am I now? And are you feeling that at all? Absolutely. All these things that I've been trying to do and line up and I've had for a few years a depression, quite a deep depression and a physical burnout and a need to really examine, you know, who I was, be in nature, do work, which helped me as well, Mm. you know, live a more sustainable, more regenerative, more peaceful life you know it's all go 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 it's all free Mm. produce this draft produce these points get to this meeting organize the funding for x y and z it's all very outcome orientated it's all very political you know most of my life has been spent on you know protecting nature but in windowless meeting rooms yeah (laughs) basements in the un or something it's deeply ironic in that way that actually to maintain a sense of natural biological order and stability you have to kind of martyr yourself to a very inhuman Mm. very head-based and technical and language-driven sort of life just so the bird population will be (laughs) happy and high or the human population you know a lot of your work is to do Mm. with humans it is but i felt i guess in 2017 2018 i really withdrew i feel my body gave up Mm. my body stopped me from doing that Mm. um and it was also to do with thinking these cops are not really working it was when trump had been elected you know there was this vicious right-wing climate denying politics including in the uk Mm. including obviously in the us in australia many of the big english-speaking countries i felt disillusioned with all of the political and legal work that i'd done and i felt like 
I needed nature, nature revived me. I did lots of nature walks, um, rewilding. I spent a lot more time with my family. I spent a lot more time with black and brown activists, actually, because I felt also quite burnt out and tired of the elbows and the turfs in the mainstream climate movement, which is pretty white. What the do environment you mean by... movement is... I think it's the second whitest sector after British farming. Really? <laughs> yeah, because there's a lot of, you know, this isn't about mm. people primarily. It is started life about, you know, birds and pandas, which are wow. important, but, you mm. know, are primarily the concern of white environmental activists. Mm. And the bigger NGOs were, and still are actually, nearly all male and quite pale. Mm-hmm. And they're making a big effort to change now, so it was quite hard at that time. And I felt I needed to connect with my own life, uh, with who I was. I'm a Muslim. I'm a migrant. I've, you know, not gone to a posh public school. I went to one of the worst comprehensives in London. There was a lot of learning that I had to do to remember mm. who I was and to connect with the people that I actually socialise with and am right. part of. You know, travel is quite disruptive and a lot of my friends became abroad, you know, from Mm. the climate world. We would meet each other in Bonn, you know, which Mm. is where the the annual meetings are and Mm. the workshops are that are in between the big cops. Mm -hmm. So I almost had this international family, which was as important sometimes as my actual family. How old were you when you went to your first cop? Just like 24 or 25 or something. Right. So like in the time of Trump to have put your whole kind of majority of your adult life into this, mm. to have forged a new family, to have gone toward these things. And then this dark time where it didn't seem like it, it was working at all. It, and in fact, there was such strong pushback that it was kind of being ripped apart. And then plus on top of that, the being a Muslim person, the anti-Muslim rhetoric in this country. Did you find that your friends who are Muslims were like, why are you doing this? Definitely, I felt... Gosh, I've been campaigning on this environmental stuff and here we are facing, you know, a hostile environment, mm. police crackdowns, the Prevent programme. You know, my family and other members of the Muslim community are being arrested, harangued. You know, if you're a man, you couldn't walk around with a beard and a rucksack for a while. <laughs> you know, and that hostility is still out there, I felt. I've been out there doing all this other work, but I've not done very much on... The issues that really mattered also to me, sort of problems in my own mind where I've lived the multicultural kind of dream. You know, I came here when I was about nine and my parents were education, education, education. And I'd done really well and I'd got to uni. I was the first woman ever to get to uni from my whole family. And I got to Oxford at that. But I think 20 years later, it felt like a huge backlash. Mm. And it felt very much like I loved England more than England loved me. Even though, you know, objectively and personally I'd achieved lots, it felt like a very Mm. hostile environment. And that started really in the run-up to the Brexit election, which is when also Trump was elected. So you had in June of 2016 this amazingly hostile, vicious, Mm. anti-Muslim, anti-migrant, anti-refugees environment. Mm. And that definitely contributed to me feeling, do I really belong here? Have Mm. I chosen the right path? What am I doing, you know? Mm. What are the social movements that are really challenging? Mm. I've been part of them. I've been away doing all this other stuff. And look what's happened. So I think it was a really important time for me to also reflect and look at other wider political struggles, I guess, like what we call social justice, racial justice, gender justice. And it wasn't that I had done nothing about them. It's just I've been so focused on the climate piece. I hadn't woven all those strands together. 
in that way and as I said I had, certainly had left my body far far behind I was ill I was overweight I developed diabetes I had high blood pressure all the symptoms of stress basically mm. not looking after myself yeah so I think by the time 2016 2017 came on I could barely function and I think from the climate side I just couldn't look at my clients who were then president of the Marshall Islands I really couldn't look at them in the eye and say one more cop's gonna really fix it for you mm. One more cop is going to make a really big difference. It was really hard to motivate myself to go through the process of writing speeches and notes. When in my heart, I was just heartbroken that this really wasn't working. Mm. And very few people were saying that. And that's when I came across Extinction Rebellion, actually. I felt like they came along and we kind of fit because the emotions I was feeling, the analysis actually that I'd done as well, that we'd reached you know, really fundamental juncture where there was a need for truth telling so that's that's what happened in 2018 and I felt like there was a little Fahana shaped hole in that movement and I fit it really nicely I was one of the few people who mm. were very well versed in climate policy knew about the negotiations knew about the climate science so that fit quite well Fahana yeah. can I step back a few years so because you've done your time with Extinction Rebellion and you've become an activist but I'm curious about that 20. 25-year-old 1990s Fahana, who you say come from, you know, urban, comprehensive background. What drove you at that time? What pulled you into knowing that climate action and on the legal level was your calling? Well, some of it was just luck. I was training as a solicitor and this charity was set up with my law firm's help called the Foundation for International Environmental Law and Development, bit of a mouthful field. And they were working on the Rio Agenda, which was, you know, from 91 to 92. And I did a little internship. My law firm said, you know, environmental law is going to be a big thing. Mm. I was really excited. And I thought I'd really like the sound of being in the UN. And it was really exciting. It was very global. So I didn't like, you know, doing all the much more parochial UK-based stuff. Mm. So I went along and did my internship for three months. And after that, they offered me a job. And I never went back to my law firm and my law firm were a little bit cross actually <laughs> they had expected me to come back and set up an environmental law practice and I, I said sorry I'm going I love the UN and it was kind of like running off to the circus but huh. for me it was yeah. running off to the UN what was so, it like the UN when you went there can you remember I what it was absolutely like absolutely loved it and in fact the first year 1991 Pakistan was the chair of this group called the G77, which is all the developing countries. And so I got to hang out with the Pakistani delegation. Which in, is your birth country, Which right? is my birth yeah. country in Rio. And they just sort of co-opted me because <laughs> they needed lots of people to help. They thought, oh, here's this lawyer. Hmm. She speaks Urdu. She knows what she's sort of doing, even though I didn't know no. that much about what I was doing. It was one of my first early meetings. And I sat down and I was starting to draft stuff with them. What became the Rio Declaration in 1992 was adopted. And I remember this really, it was quite a funny thing. I didn't know any of the sort of etiquettes and protocols at that time, really, of, you know, how you hobnob with world leaders. And hmm. I remember I was standing too close to this president. I think he was from Belarus. And I kept going a little bit closer because, you know, there's a sort of natural yeah. distance at which yeah. you stand. He kept going backwards. <laughs> and, by, and I kept edging a little bit forward because, forward, you know, I wanted to really 
pay him exquisite attention. Yeah, be warm and friendly. Be warm and friendly. And I think <laughs> did I didn't realise that I was just... <laughs> Breaching protocol. Of, well, their sense of distance is slightly right. 20 centimetres, half a metre more than ours. So by the end of this, it was like a 15-minute conversation. We'd sort of literally moved all but... the way across the halls. <laughs> but I now know, you know, there are lots and lots of protocols. But at that time, I was very naive wow. about these things. I, I needed a little handbook. Yeah. Protocol handbook. Where were you based at this time? I was based in London. Oh, I right. was travelling all the time. Um, so New York and Geneva were the main areas of the negotiation sites. And then the Germans cunningly, you know, convinced, um, bribed, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Incentivized. Incentivized. Mm. Good word. Good word. <laughs> non libelous yes. Uh, incentivized us to vote at the first COP in COP1 in 1995 for Bonn to be the centre location of the Climate Change Secretariat. And, and then so, you had to go to Bonn all, every year and stay. Yes, oh. yes. And I really, really regretted it because I had really strong friendships with people in the Secretariat. Yeah. And many of them had been based in Geneva and then they decided not to move. Bon voyage, bon, maybe. Bon voyage. <laughs> yeah. Good <fun>. Sorry. <laughs> I want to ask about, you talk about that proximity to leaders. You've been very close in negotiations and advising to many different leaders as they've come and gone. And I wondered, particularly in light of having really looked into the eyes of some of our current prime ministers and presidents you know, over November, how you've seen leadership change in response to the climate emergency, if any change has happened. Well, the really annoying, but I guess it's good, thing about the leaders this time at the COP was they were all using the right kind of words mm. and phrases. It's almost like they've co-opted the, the language, language. Yeah. of leadership on climate change. All rhetoric. And a lot of it is, as Chris says, blah, blah, blah. But at least they're not arguing against it. That's a good thing. They've yeah. you know, committed to it. And that's real. You know, their yeah. intentions, we have to make them real. But sometimes it felt really uncomfortable to have, you know, someone who's done sod all. It just felt like a sort of insult. And I have to say, I felt most annoyed when John Kerry was speaking. And it's like he's taken all our talking points, but it's like, well, we want you to do the action. We don't want you to tell us that climate ah. is an emergency and it really needs urgent action. We know that. That's why we're here. Because you've been responsible for some of that discrete language, some of the actual terms we use. And in a way, it's a compliment, right? And I guess blah, blah, blah. That's like a, a real good shorthand as a response for like, yeah, walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. But can I take a step back? And could you talk about the language that you brought in, the terms and words? Because you've had a really significant impact here. Yeah. So on the language, like on the Saturday, the final Glasgow decision, what was called the overarching decision, it had the word Glasgow emergency packed. Mm -hmm. And then that was deleted at the very last minute. The word emergency isn't there anymore. Did you see that and, being yeah, taken yeah, yeah. out? Well, it was done behind the scenes, but, you know, one set of decisions had it and then the because final ones what didn't. Does that and an emergency means that you accept that, you know, there are actually legal consequences to it, but it means that you've accepted that it's time to act in a different way, mm -hmm. that, you know, you can't just cite normal plans and processes that you know that yeah. things have to move very, very fast and that you have to take action, which is beyond the normal so that's what that means literally in that sense it wasn't a legal word it was just a title to a decision but you know the fact that they 
took, took out. that out. Who's they? So the COP presidency in the end made a decision, but I suspect some delegation requested it. You know, I know that the UK government also had a problem when XR came along and said, we want you to declare a climate emergency. So they said, no, 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 we can't actually declare it an emergency. Because declaring a national emergency has legal consequences. Funds are released. Some funds yeah. are released, powers, powers are... Yeah. You know, and it can be quite dangerous Like to mm. have a declaration. You know, it can be used in an abusive way as mm. a, an abuse of power. Often authoritarian sure. regimes or others... Trump used use, it quite a lot. Uses it a lot. Quite, yeah. So, But that's not what was intended here. The intention was to put things on a different footing and to give a political steer that things must be done. So I, I feel like that is one of the things that we try to do mm-hmm. from the Polish COP, which was in 2018, yeah. onwards, is try and get this emergency framing to get the truth-telling mm. emergency framing in. But my own personal, I guess the biggest thing that I've done, which is to invent this idea of zeroing out emissions yeah, and put that as the centrepiece of the Paris negotiations, So I came up with this idea in 2013. Where did you come up with it? Well, outside a meeting that we'd had with DFID. DFID is for our listeners. Oh, it was the Department for International Aid, which has now been absorbed by the Foreign Office. So at that meeting, I just said, we should phase out these polluting gases. We should stop trying to halve them or create markets to swap offsets in them. We should just phase them out. And then after that, meeting my colleague, so we were standing outside, and it was around January, actually. It was quite cold, I remember. And she said, the only interesting thing about that meeting was you saying that we should phase that out. That's an exciting idea. Mm. And then I wrote a paper. So Cop. then we went to Paris. I went to a meeting in Paris with a few strategists, people from the NGO world. Um, I've written about a chapter, actually, which just came out in a book. What's the book it's called? Month. It's called Negotiating the Paris Agreement. It tells story of how Mm. I came up not just with the idea of net zero but coordinated a sort of coalition Mm -hmm. with people to then get it into the agreement wasn't just me it was hundreds of diplomats in Mm -hmm. different countries and players who did that but anyway that's how the idea came about so I presented this idea just a few paragraphs on it at this strategy meeting in March in Paris of 2013 and everyone said yeah that's really exciting you should write a bigger paper on it and we should put the numbers that are needed like when would the phase out date be Mm -hmm. so then we had to commission some modelers and that was 25,000 euros and we had to find the money to commission the analytics so this was part you know to put the Mm. case forward I needed to say here are the models that say net zero by 2050 is the right date Mm -hmm. right so we needed a paper that clearly said that from the models and that that's what the 1.5 degree goal I know this is very technical no it's very helpful though and anyway so no one would stub up the money and accept some friends in the end you know finding these pots of money did that and that research And that paper was the underlying basis which translated all that complicated science at that time into that goal Mm. and said the global date for a phase-out was 2050. So then we had the legal arguments, the advocacy arguments, and then this analytic piece saying that that's the date. So so anyway, so that's what happened in 2013. So I spent sort of six months, and the formal paper didn't come out until October because it had to be peer-reviewed and all the work on it. And then we created a whole network of people creating a kind of political coalition Mm -hmm. because nothing gets through until you have the bulk of parties championing it and supporting it and putting it in submissions putting it in every speech making sure you turn up that's how things in the end end up being that 
few words, those few lines in international treaties, thousands and thousands of hours and thousands of people working around the clock. And this year, because of the topic of loss and damage within COP, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the outcome and how that looks on a kind of what you were hoping for. We were hoping to avoid loss and damage. You know, back when I started, we started in 1989 is when the IPCC produced its report. And all of the climate negotiations were then on the precautionary principle Mm. for the 10, 15 years. We were not even certain that climate change was happening. The IPCC had not then ruled definitively as it would do in its second report Mm. that climate change was happening. But even as good lawyers at that time, good questions, um, we anticipated that there would be these horrific impacts if Mm. climate change happened. So in the 1992 parent treaty, the Climate Convention itself, It's littered with references to adaptation, what we call the need to face the consequences. And it also carries this one phrase about insurance, which Mm. was the code word that we could get in at that time Hmm. for compensation, liability, losses. So those words are always, you know, very dodgy from the point of view of emitters. They find them very difficult. They're very controversial. Mm. But they accepted at that time that through precautionary sort of approaches like insurance would be better ways of handling loss and damage just like you and I have insurance for houses or our precious items or maybe your voice is insured I don't know is your voice insured Sam? (laughs) (laughs) but um that liability issue our countries at the moment really concerned about being liable to the impacts in other countries because they have been higher admitters is this so is the loss and damage this compensation package is that their way of is it kind of like we'll pay you off with this amount so that you can't come back to us oh i wish they would pay us off okay (laughs) so absolutely legally there is huge sensitivity about opening the floodgates opening liability of countries to be sued internationally Mm. opening up the principle that polluter pays again the Mm. principle that we negotiated the convention with And I think that there is more litigation uh, around that even now. But the Paris negotiations, which I played a role in, explicitly included an article on loss and damage. It included legal provisions on loss and damage with the proviso that this would not implicate liability and compensation. So there was a balance struck that we essentially from the vulnerable countries said, we will stop calling it liability and compensation as long as you actually provide support. Mm. And that's the more neutral words that are used mm. in the Paris Agreement, is support. Mm. We don't want to get stuck into the legalities. Yeah. We just want help. some help. Mm. But it is happening. Loss and damage, you know, irreversible, irreparable harm is happening mm. to ecosystems, to social systems, to human systems. It feels particularly... Um, kind of sensitive that Bangladesh as you say was the host country for the Climate Vulnerable Forum you were there as an advisor and working with them yet it's their neighbours it's India and China who are the ones that really put their foot into the negotiations so are there political games that have been happening there that Bangladesh which has so much to lose and is is you know teetering on the edge of a deluge and yet it's their neighbours that are literally yeah yeah Well, Bangladesh's own emissions are very small, whereas Mm. India's total absolute emissions are very large Mm. and China's are larger still. And they're both at a more advanced stage of development, even though they are developing countries still. 
So that's the big tension. And they're both China and India sitting on, you know, very large reserves of what for them seems cheap coal. But there is this fear on their part as well that given that in absolute terms they are now very large emitters, they're in the top five. Historically, that's not the case. If you take history Mm, into account, you know, that other countries like the UK, like the US are much bigger emitters. And that's what the big fight is about. They want to be able to continue to use some of their coal and they're saying other emitters who've used up their carbon budget, as it were, who've been historical emitters in the past, who've got deeper pockets, they Mm. should go first in switching and let them have a bigger carbon budget, as it were. Mm. Um, I have a sort of more complicated view of it. I I don't think that China and India have a right to pollute the atmosphere, especially because their alternatives exist Mm. and they're good for them. And now they're cheaper as well. Yeah. So actually, I just don't think their case holds up. It's like, actually, Mm. this is just the powerful vested interest in India and a mindset about large-scale coal being the way out, not being told what to do. And do they also have lobbying companies, you know, the big fossil fuel companies in those countries that are also got their, you know, Absolutely, and they're donors too, just like we have donors, you know, to political parties. The coal industry is really a big player and they provide a large chunk of tax revenue. Mm. So it's quite complicated. But yeah, they, from my point of view, you know, India has huge number of poor people huge numbers of people who are dependent on agriculture 60 percent of you know india is dependent on rain-fed agriculture you know the hit that country is going to take with climate Mm. change is not Mm. being considered Mm -hmm. in the same footing as you know carrying on providing power and electricity and these are the same countries where the poorest sections of the population don't even benefit from the construction of power Mm -hmm. lines and electricity they would benefit from switching to microgrids and solar which can be made available far more quickly to remote areas so it is increasingly i think a wealth and a class issue about 1.7 billion of the world don't even have modern electricity and modern you know energy so Mm. we need to think about how best to meet their needs we need to increase you know energy for them uh, but it doesn't have to be done through coal, is my argument, mm. or um, oil or gas, you know, which are the other two culprits, really. I mean, I always think about Australia, you know, a so-called developed country where they have really high standards of living, enormous opportunities for solar power and other forms of energy generation that's going to be absolutely slammed and is being absolutely slammed by the effects of climate change and yet still is a laggard and dragging everybody else down. It's crazy. I mean, it's but, not yeah. crazy, except when you start to look at it from the point of view of power. Now who's got and something to lose? And I feel that's what yeah. we haven't done. Yeah. You know, in the climate movement, we produced lots of fantastic reports saying yeah. why action is good and, you know, it benefits everyone mm-hmm. in the long term. But we didn't count on the power and intransigence. Yeah. Yeah. We just thought producing reports and handing them over politely at a side event would kind of change the minds yeah. of these actors. Excuse and me, we, the world's going to die uh, yeah. unless we change. Yeah. Like, but then knowing that, feeling like less naive, knowing we're at this real crisis point and seeing the way that language quickly gets co-opted and used as a screen to hide behind even things like getting to zero. You know, you can see nation states or big organisations who don't like the idea of having to phase out very, very quickly saying, oh, yeah, you know, let's kick this can the road and use this zero language. Mm. What are the language battlegrounds like looking ahead over the next few months and years? Where in the language do you see the battles being fought? And where can we make progress on these issues using language? Justice, yeah. fairness. These are solutions. We shouldn't just think that solutions to climate 
in action are technology, more mm -hmm. technology, more markets, more offsets. Actually, you know, creating a fairer world, tackling systemic and historic injustices is a solution because, for example, the indigenous people who had the second largest delegation in Glasgow after the fossil fuel industry, you know, represent a very small minority in terms of human populations, I mm. think 6% or something, but they safeguard 80% of the world's biodiversity. Mm. They have a huge amount of land, which is actually legally theirs, which is being encroached on and which is being devastated. So actually, if you gave them their proper human rights, gave mm. them back their land titles, actually had enforceable ways of making sure they could continue safeguarding what they've done for generations, then that would be a huge solution also to climate mm -hmm. change. It would be a solution to climate change. So I think that idea of, mm. of justice and fairness, of climate justice mm. being a way forward is key. And the Glasgow decision also stressed just transition. Mm. And again, that's been a really missing piece. So we've not consulted and engaged and involved people, especially mm. workers. You know, we've been very obsessed with looking at economic models that say, here are the winners and here are the losers. But oops, we forgot to ask the losers, you know, what they wanted to do. So right. again, that's built a big backlash in regions and sectors that are going to be directly affected. And I think that COVID has shown that when people are given the information and mm. told why they need to change habits to safeguard each other, they act really responsibly. But, um, that's what I think. Just transition and climate justice. Yeah. Those are the official like, lingos, actually. They're already in the Paris Agreement. And my next big thing was to try and get those enacted further. So I think the new net zero yeah. is actually just justice and mm. just transition. It's been wonderful hearing the 30 years in the game here of, uh, of COPs. There's been an enormous amount of reporting saying that it's been a total disaster and you know we're all doomed with this cop but I'm getting a sense of almost a slightly hopeful as though this is there's been a lot of positive transitions in the outcomes here and I wonder whether you're seeing the longer game you know the next 30 years or how you feel coming out with a bit of you know with a few days separation of what the journey ahead of whether we, there has been good progress made here. There has been progress. I felt very very down and very upset because on the last night you saw for example, the provisions on justice, on loss and damage, just lost, which was a real shame. But, you know, I reflected that in every movement, there are moments of crises, you know, in the civil rights movement in the US, for example, you saw Selma, you know, mm. how would those people have felt at that mm. time? It was a massive setback. So I feel like this was a setback, you know, of that kind. We are so far behind, but at the same time, the resolve of people to push a better deal forward in six months in nine months in a year every day couldn't be stronger mm. and I think they realize people mm. realize you cannot leave it to politicians and vested interests and they saw that on display and they realize that there are lots of solutions so we have to keep battling on I feel a little bit more hopeful about you know, what can be achieved. Mm. What would you tell your was it 25 year old self heading to the UN that you know now? that would have helped her? Oh, I would have remained an activist. I wouldn't have mm. put all my trust and energy in the legal process. Fahana, if you were to put a ratio of impact that you've had in the world of Fahana the lawyer and Fahana the activist, where would that sort of ratio sit? Definitely the lawyer has done 
pretty well. I've done lots of really good stuff. I know that. Did you say you're like twenty percent is activist? Yeah, and... and I think that's the activist. That's that that part is getting stronger. So mm-hmm. I feel like actually I did play a really big part in the Extinction Rebellion and supporting those other movements that came out of that yeah. other initiatives like Culture Declares, Music Declares. They are having such a much longer lasting finish. You know, they are carrying those seeds of change in so many parts that after yeah. the initial rebellions and arrests are over, I, they are continuing in a more nurturing way, in a more radical way. I think we have such a debt of gratitude to XR, being at COP and seeing how much the cultural and creative and global movement in support for change, how much XR actually ignited that. It, they were not the first but this cop would not have been the same without No, no I, I think absolutely. But I, I want to sort of broaden that because XR mm. is the nonviolent direct action in the UK. And, is you know, mm. there was a lot of nonviolent direct action going on before XR came along. Of but also all around the world, we have to really praise and support and give credit to the defenders of nature, mm. many of whom are you know, not just getting arrested, they're being Being beaten and murdered and thrown in prison and harassed. And we had that even at this COP, you know, some of the indigenous people who came when Mm. they went back were subject to harassment and will face quite a different, they won't be recording podcasts, they'll be, you know, out there on the front lines Mm. and they pay a high price. And that was one of the motivations for me, actually. I did an event in 2016 called Defending the Defenders and I realised you know, I have such privilege mm. and my way of tackling injustice isn't as high risk as what's happening all around the world. Mm. So um, to all of the defenders, all of those putting their liberty and life on the line, that's a big salute from me. And I think this cop has shown we've got to carry on that. So Fahana, mm. the activist, is definitely going to carry on. If people are listening and they want to help you do what you're doing and the people that you're trying to help get what they need, how can they help? Well, I'm going to launch a little website. I have never, I haven't got a website at the moment, really. Um, and I'll be putting on there ways to donate and support some of the people that I've come in contact with. That will be a very direct way of doing that. Um, what I'm really trying to do is get other donors to join and give much bigger uh, amounts, you know, uh, create a big fund, basically, to fund climate justice and just transition activism in mm. the global south. So mm. if you if you want to donate, please contact me. <laughs> That's the work that I'm doing right mm-hmm. now, because I feel also I'm at the end of this cycle, as I said, of 30 years, I feel the best thing I can do is nurture support, nurture newcomers uh, and make their journeys as activists, as professionals, you know, much easier. I mean, what a, how lucky it is to catch Farhana at this point in time. Yeah. That she's... She's softened. Well, I mean, yeah, in the way that she described, she's come home and she's put her bag down and sorted out her garden and now she's looking to the future. Whereas in the cop, you've got this feeling that everyone's so caught up in what exactly is happening there. And there's this longer view, which is, I guess, it's probably rare that you speak to somebody who's so involved in such important things where they're not 
immediately already grappling with the next urgent thing, mm. a reflective point. I think it's amazing also, you know, as lawyers are, you know, every minute is billed. Helpful. It's, bi- <laughs> it's billed and, you know, she's not that type of lawyer. Wait, is Svana going to bill us for this? I hope not. We're just a podcast. <laughs> we couldn't afford her. Yeah. But also that, you know, this cop more than, you know, maybe any others, it's only a short two weeks and every moment counts. Mm. And, and actually, mm-hmm. it's so nice that she's now in a place of reflectiveness and of really feeling the, the what has happened in context of her 30 years, she suddenly stepped back and able to tell a story as opposed to being in the battle mode. It's also, it's just struck me how long this climate change story is. Mm. That people who've done it for 30 years and are still continuing it are writing histories of it while it continues unresolved. It's quite an intimidating beast to try and talk about. But it's also, there seem to be so many threads in what she was saying that were echoed in some of the other people that we were able to speak to, which you'll be able to listen to over the coming weeks, who have totally different jobs and ways of interacting with climate and nature crises. Mm. One of the amazing, we didn't really talk much about it. She did mention the indigenous delegation. She really, like, she was responsible for them being housed, for coming over. There were hundreds and hundreds of different tribes from around the world. And I think where she's fought many different battles and actually the one that she's really pioneering at the moment is this sense of Mm. unity, of bringing the voices of the people who are really out there experiencing the day-to-day attrition of their habitat and Mm. their way of life and empowering them. Yeah, like in this country, it's so hard Mm. with our broken nature and our disassociation with the things that we're fighting for. You know, if we're fighting for the climate and you live in a polluted city, if you're fighting for nature and you live surrounded by concrete, if you're fighting for things that have been important in your traditional ways of life and your connection to the generations before you and you've been separated from them and moved around the place, it's really hard to know why, like to have at your heart what it is you're fighting for and to come back to that and draw strength from that. I thought she was very eloquent about that. Fahana really, because of her international life, she really experiences her empathetic connection to what people have to lose. And to have that combined with the weaponry of oral, literary and legal language, it's a phenomenal combination that she wields, hence why she's such a big player in this movement. I'm really glad Fahana's on our side. God, yeah. Thank you very much to our guests today on this show, as well as all you lovely listeners. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, give us a rating. It'll cheer us up and encourage us. You can follow us on social media at SoHotPod. You can also follow me, Sam Lee, at Sam Lee Song. And you can follow me, can't you, Sam? At Tom Mustill. A huge thanks to Arctic Base Camp for providing home and food and sustenance while we were up in COP. Of course, special thanks to Carl Burkhardt and his team at One Earth, without whom we wouldn't have been able to do this series. Once again, One Earth is a philanthropic organisation working to accelerate collective action to limit global average temperature rise to 1.5C. Find out more at One Earth. So Hot Right Now was hosted by me, Sam Lee. And me, Tom Mustill. It's produced by Picture Zero Productions and Pod Monkey. This episode was recorded at Soho Radio Studios. The series producer is Lindsay. Say hello to our listeners, Lindsay. Hi. The executive producers are Matt and Scott at Pod Monkey, and also the wonderful Burgess Haycock at Picture Zero.